not here. Captain! Signatures detected. Shields up. Signatures detected. Context Starfleet Command. What's happening? Context Starfleet Command. Delay that order. Context Starfleet Command. This is the captain. Context Starfleet Command. Get out of my chair. Chair, 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 chair. We have engaged the Klingons. 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 Don't Klingons. Welcome to the greatest discovery. It's a Star Trek Discovery podcast by the makers of The Greatest Generation. I'm Ben Harrison. I'm Adam Pranica. You know, Adam, we, uh, on our on our sister show, The Greatest Generation, spent a lot of time in the run-up to Discovery coming out lobbying for a position in the writer's room. Uh, like the writing team of Ben and Adam getting to be in that writer's room was something we were really angling for. We were hoping there was somebody out there in the audience that, you know, had had enough pull to say like, hey, these guys are great. <laughs> I mean, I don't know why anybody would think that, but <laughs> but somehow they thought we were great and that we should be in the in the writer's room. And uh, here at the second to last episode of season one, I uh, I'm sad to announce that it didn't happen for us. <laughs> ben, after almost having finished season one of Star Trek Discovery, I can confidently say that there's no place where we belong less than, <laughs> than, uh, than what I believe is to be a pretty skilled place in that Star Trek Discovery writer's room. I think, I think our brand of assholery would be most unwelcome there. I think we would be the two dumbest guys in the room. Yeah, no question. <laughs> but I think they're like in watching this episode, especially there was there was a position that really leapt out at me as something I think that would be really fun for us. Uh huh. Which is uh, hallway extra on Discovery. <laughs> Season two is in production right now. Here's my pitch: they don't even have to pay to fly us to toronto we'll pay our own way we'll put oh, yeah. ourselves up it, you know we'll we'll find we'll find accommodations we'll feed ourselves but put us in a uniform give us give us a hallway to be walking down like conferring over some information on an ipad and then stop and look up when some like super intense announcement is going out over the uh, over the ship pa that's the that's the important distinction, Ben. Right there is that I want to be an announcement extra, someone right. who is standing still, looking skyward, listening to the voice of the captain. I want I want to do the concern face of like, <laughs> oh my god, shit is go- getting real. Do you want loaf or or no loaf for this? Oh, I want loaf. <laughs> Give me all the loaf. I want to be in the fucking makeup chair for six hours minimum. <laughs> Ben. I want to be one of those like background aliens that you're like, what the fuck even is this alien? Like we've <laughs> like they're in Starfleet, but we've never heard of them. It seems impossible for this alien to do a job. There's so much loaf <laughs> on this alien. <laughs> is that an alien or is that Mickey from In the Night Kitchen? <laughs> because I don't want our appearance to hit the budget. I, I will be the one who ha- wears no loaf at all. I want everyone to see my dumb face. I want to have... Actually, the the, the place that my appearance would hit the budget the most would be in uh, hair gel. I want that nice future hair that's slicked back a little bit. I want to wear the uniform. Yeah. That's going to be my look. 
I think we could we could both be you know you could be the human crewmate and I could be the loafy crewmate and uh, I think that would be a lot of fun for both of us. It also seems like it's it's far more attainable in the way that you and I prefer. Like our 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 wax wings melted on the idea of being in the writers' <laughs> room, Ben. Let's yeah. uh, let's aim a little lower. But it's like, come on! Like we know that we know that they're listening. We know that Tilly and the USS Jaeger, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, would not have happened if it, if not for the Greatest Generation. Hopefully, they're listening to the Greatest Discovery, and hopefully, they've taken pity on these two idiots. I'm pretty sure one of our listeners is a gaffer on the show. I keep getting intermittent tweets from someone who. No kidding. Who writes about being on the production, and yet, like, this person in their Twitter bio is not super specific about it in a way that I feel like is very intentional, and so I am not <laughs> asking this person a bunch of questions about the show because I think that's, like, there's an embargo on on what this person can say, but, you know, if we have people on the inside, I think that could be very beneficial to this campaign. Yeah. It, all campaigns need a hashtag, Ben. Do you have one for this? God, what is it going to be? Maybe it'll come to us as we as we record. I don't have anything off the top of my head, but Okay, well maybe yeah, maybe we need to get into the app to to stir our creativity, shall we? I'm with you, man. I love Toronto. I'd pay my own way. I'm a non-union actor. Just stick me in the background. Be cheap. Cheap and easy. <laughs> Let's make it happen. We d- we'll, we'll donate our salaries to science education. Fuck yeah, that's what we'll do. That's a great idea. We're not in this for the money. We're in it for the loaf and the vindication that we don't deserve. I'm also in it to be discovered, Ben. I want someone to see <laughs> us in the background and go, that, those guys have it. I don't know yeah. what it is. But uh, I'm going to ask that guy for a meeting and give him a bottle of water. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Ben, let's go ahead and talk about uh, the penultimate episode of the first season of Star Trek Discovery. It's uh, season one, episode 14, The War Without, The War Within. We have engaged the Klingons. Klingons? Klingons? Don't Klingons? What the hell is going on on this ship? The slightest idea. In the, in the episode before the last episode of any season... You sort of expect a lot of, like, you expect to see things tied up, but I think this episode starts more problems than it solves. Yeah. Yeah, the last episode was doing a lot of bow tying, and this is doing a lot of uh, adding new string to the to the pile. Right. And, uh, yeah, so we start with, like, we see the paint job getting fixed on, on the uh, outside of the ship, and... Uh, Saru showing up in the transporter room to discover that uh, that Giorgio is back, but uh, <laughs> but this Giorgio is uh, is is looking to eat some some Saru, <laughs> and uh, she she raises her gun and almost shoots him, but Michael Burnham disarms her pretty quickly. Copian is my captain. Yeah, and Saru is not super happy about. Uh, about a mirror universe person being so familiar with his race, given that Michael Burnham told him that there were no Kelpians in the mirror universe. He's sort of, what the fuck's her? And it's worse than that. Like, he finds out that she ate one of his people. Mm. <laughs> so awkward. 
Saru like has has mirror Giorgio sent to quarters and confined there and then tells the transporter chief like this is a big secret don't tell anybody and he's like oh yeah i just work in here like nobody talks to me michael burnham is like yeah man like i don't think i could i could watch her die again like i've been through a lot and uh that would have just been like another piece of trauma to inflict on myself i love that the transporter up in this room has like Justin Guarani hair. <laughs> like everything that's out is back in again in the future. His hair is beautiful and I have definitely noticed it a few times. This is the first time I think he's spoken. Yeah, and the idea to classify uh, Mirror Universe Giorgio's presence is a thing that continues throughout the episode. This idea that we've got to we've got to squish knowledge of this mirror universe and keep it away from everyone who might be interested in it it's especially interesting because it kind of taught like makes you think about like what everybody on the ship knows about and what they don't yeah like was it only the people on the bridge that saw the hologram projection of emperor giorgio when uh, when that reveal happened sort of sort of seems like it might be that way right <laughs> That's a great point. It's not like her appearance hasn't happened already before. I don't know how you keep a secret this big. Everybody must have known that they were in a different universe because their whole ships needed to like work on the project of getting back to their own universe. But yeah, it seems like there's like a lot of layers of classification and they're pretty confident that secrets are not getting out. I feel like at some point, if the Federation is lucky enough to survive the war, there's going to be like an alien autopsy style show on Fox <laughs> where like the painter of the ship that paints the eye to the U and then back to the eye again will be like shot in, shot in backlight and his voice will be all modulated. It'll be like, yeah, I, I helped paint the ship. We were in that mirror universe for a long time. Oh, Kevin, Kevin, you you operate the the little shuttlecraft that repaints the ship. As, as a way to make some extra money, I I offer my voice talents as a way to anonymize witnesses to the mirror universe. As a man who lives outside of time, I know that this is still over a hundred years before I meet my lovely wife Rashan, and therefore I'm just biding my time among the humans. Until that happens. Do you think Mirror Universe Kevin Uxbridge is a thing, or does Kevin Uxbridge exist in all universes? Because I could imagine Mirror Universe Kevin Uxbridge is like, instead of exterminating the Hooshnack, <laughs> I decided I had no need for Rashan. Instead, I fucked all the Hooshnack everywhere. <laughs> We have no no rubber to fit your penis. <laughs> this is a this is a total scandal, and I'm really interested to see if they're able to cover this up. It seems like at many times throughout this episode, they make the case for the secrecy in a way that just doesn't seem plausible. <laughs> yeah, it does feel like they are setting the table for why Spore Drive doesn't exist after this in the timeline. Yeah. Yeah. But um it's a bit of a of a strained issue at this point. Um I love the there's like a walk and talk between Seru and 
Michael Burnham and um, they're like walking through the ship. The The ship is uh, taking some bangers and so they're they're kind of patching it back up. And I loved the sound design of this right. walk and talk. Like the, I mean, we've talked about this a little bit before, like hearing the, the background of, uh, you know, announcements going out and people right. working and stuff. Uh, it feels so much like a, a real place. And, and I think that's a cool new thing for Trek. The backgrounds are super deep on this show. I think they're deeper than any other Star Trek series. Yeah. And they fill the backgrounds with people and activity. And in this case, an angle grinder with sparks coming off of it. Like this, this feels like a lived in place in a way that, uh, that, that TNG really wasn't. And, you know, one of the differences between past Star Trek and future Star Trek is I think the carpeting, because you could never <laughs> run an angle grinder on the Enterprise D because yeah. those sparks are going to light the carpet on fire. <laughs> yeah. You think Ash Tyler gets some PTSD walking through those halls and an angle grinder is is brandished? <laughs> I probably yeah. would. He needs a a trigger warning before he sees an angle grinder. So the the core of the conversation between Burnham and Saru is the presence of Georgiou and and why she thought to take her. And at this point, it's uh, it's a little bit ambiguous. But Saru is not against the idea of her existing in this universe. Yeah, he basically says like we'll we'll see whether or not this was a terrible judgment call, but right. I'm not going to I'm not going to call it yet. He reserves judgment and then pivots into, "Hey, uh also, you remember your boy? Uh we did some power glove on his brains and he seems to be uh recovering. So, uh maybe you'd like to see him?" And uh Burnham is not thrilled by that idea. She even goes to so far as to say, like, are you ordering me to to go talk to him? Because if not, I'm not down. And uh man, like what a bummer. Like she she's been through so much and she comes back and like you know, like what would normally be the person you want to like run back into the arms of like the last time she interacted with him he he tried to choke her out. Yeah, it's a lot to get over and her uh, disinterest in seeing him again is totally understandable, I think, at this point. Yeah, her arc in this episode is really interesting and very emotionally tough, I think. Yeah. Saru is able to absolve Ash of of the crimes that his body has committed, at least. Right, yeah. Like, anything that was a Vogue act is, it, like, Saru can really easily categorize that as not Ash Tyler's fault. It's because Saru is like, yeah, I was under the sway of a Kool-Aid sneeze not too long ago, and everyone forgave <laughs> me, so I guess I'm just going to pay it forward. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, it's, it's really great that we live in a time when we can disentangle alien influence from our own actions. It's no awesome. No kidding. Jeez. But uh, that doesn't stop them from putting them under a form of house arrest. They fit them for a bracelet. and yeah. Did you notice how uniquely Saru is walking in this episode, even compared to previous episodes? I think before we've noticed that he's sort of walking on the front of it, on the toes of his feet. He's wearing the hoof boots. This is right. the first time I've noticed that um, for balance, he's like his hands are behind his back and he sort of sways his arms as yeah. he walks down a hallway. It's it's really elegant and it's a really interesting alien detail from him from Doug Jones. He kind of walks like John Roderick. 
this is a long cold open. Yeah. Ash Tyler is given a, uh, you know, like a limited amount of freedom. He's he's not going back to work. He's been stripped of rank, but he can he can walk around and do his thing. He's gonna like do the work of trying to figure out what his life looks like from here on in, and uh, takes the news that Michael Burnham is back, but also the like unstated thing that she is not you know desperate to see him. Pretty tough. His life looks incredibly bleak right now. I mean, he doesn't have a home. He doesn't have an identity, which is worse. Every everyone he loved before now hates him for for totally rational reasons. It's not the sort of pain that comes from people not understanding you and and hating you for for the wrong reasons. Like in this case they're right. He's kind of two people in one, but with only the motivations of the one at this point. And I feel like that is as close as we are probably going to get to having a detailed explanation of what the Klingons did to him. Yeah, I mean, they seem really uninterested in in being ultra-specific about it. And I guess maybe it might not matter at this point. This is about uh, Ash's recovery, and maybe we're not looking back anymore if we're Ash. Yeah. So Saru heads up to the bridge and they're detecting that a Starfleet ship might be uh, nearby. Like they've been having a tough time raising the rest of the Starfleet universe. But uh, onto the bridge beams an invasion force of Starfleets. And it is like every alien in the Starfleet handbag. (laughs) And uh, among them is Admiral Bob and Sarek. And Sarek basically walks up and uh, steals all of Saru's memory, and uh, this like over Michael Burnham's protest. You rarely he, see an assault meld in Star yeah. Trek. This is a fairly rare thing. It is like almost as surprising and fucked up as the end of Undiscovered Country, right? Unlike that scene, uh, Saru like you know relents and lets it happen, and. Uh, uh, Sarek basically like goes ashen and turns to Admiral Bob and is like, man, these guys have been through some shit. <laughs> What's great about a mind meld is that uh, it's very, it's a super efficient way to catch people up Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> because it's basically a smash cut into a McLaughlin group Issue one. where they go around the table discussing where they're at right now. Admiral Bob is, is apoplectic about about Lorca and feels a little bit, I think, uh, disappointed that he's dead instead of giving her the chance to, uh, to adjudicate what he's done. She feels bad that she wasn't able to recognize him for the mirror universe person that he was also like, there's a, there's a bunch of competing feelings. Well, they also do this weird thing where she's like, Oh, well, there's no way that my, that my Lorca could have survived in the mirror universe because it's too crazy there. So he's probably dead. And they, and they just kind of leave, leave it at that. Like I wouldn't expect them to be mounting a rescue operation for Lorca, but I also feel like the, there's like a little bit of weird convenience in just deciding he must be dead because we haven't heard from him. Well, what this set me up into thinking was that, 
Admiral Bob is at every turn interested in in squishing and classifying Mirror Universe stuff. Yeah. Was was Mirror Universe Discovery really destroyed or is that just something that she told the crew? <laughs> like because the pol- Federation policy at this point seems to be about burying the evidence of that. And I mean if if Prime Universe Lorca is over in the Mirror Universe and the Defiant is still there, like is Prime Universe Lorca truly dead and in this show especially is anyone really dead if we don't see them die? Yeah, I, I I'm thinking I'm thinking that it could be setting him up to come back and waste uh, Giorgio. Yeah, yeah. Like, if you think about, like, a season two where Michael Burnham has been given some sort of, you know, judicial reprieve and recommissioned as an officer, but she has to serve under Lorca, who is a version of Lorca that she doesn't really know, and also, like, avenged himself to Emperor Giorgio and re-killed her, you know, her mother figure in front of her again. Like, that is a complicated-ass relationship. Yeah, it's a Mobius strip of story right there is what you're describing. Yeah, it it might almost be too, like, high concept for a character relationship, but I don't know. It's fun to think about. It's hard to accuse the show of being too high concept when one of its main <laughs> storylines is like they basically unzipped, they made a skin suit out of Ash Tyler and then like minimized Voke and stuck him in there. We have been waiting for someone worthy of our attention. Who are you? Those Klingons? So, one of the things that they. Uh, that they disclose in this McLaughlin group is that uh, the Klingons aren't working as one group collective. All of the 24 houses have fractured and they're all trying to score points on the Federation in order to come out on top as like top house. Like if in a, in a CBS reality show parlance, like, (laughs) like this is the reality show that they're doing. Like who's, who's uh, house is going to come out on top. And it's really bloody because, all of the Klingons are better than all of the Federation, and they really can't do anything to stop this kind of bloodshed. And they've been doing bad stuff, like crazy stuff, stuff that is unthinkable, but also like doesn't even have any strategic value, just like killing 11,000 civilians that aren't even a part of the conflict, just to, just to get some points on the board. It's like the kind of mayhem that you you can't defend against because you can never predict what the next thing is going to be. Yeah. So Admiral Bob is like, look, uh, Disco is probably still the most valuable tool in the fleet. We got to get her back to Starbase One. We got to we got to share this intel, and then we've also got to destroy this intel. Yeah, they've they've distributed the detect cloaking field math that they did to the rest of the fleet, but. Uh, they, they don't want that to be too little too late. And the case that they make in the room is, is fairly fascinating for its, its expungement. They are, they are like, look, if people in our universe find out that their loved ones are alive in a different universe, the desperation of those people could be a real problem for us. So this knowledge must be buried. In uh, the next scene, uh, Admiral Bob actually meets Emperor Giorgio with uh, with Sarek and Michael Burnham. Ben, all of the quarters on this ship are giant. Like, for someone who is is supposed to be in sort of like neutral brig, 
<laughs> like not punishment brig. She's just in sort of a place where they can hold her. Really yeah. nicely appointed cabin. She she checked in at the uh, at Engine Hospitality's desk, and he found out that she had Starwood Platinum status. So he's like, oh, uh, looks like we can upgrade you. Looks like you're an emperor. We're going to go ahead and give you the penthouse. And it totally has, like, uh, like booze in it. Yeah. Uh, Michael Burnham says something pretty weird here, which is that... Um, that Giorgio, you know, has been deposed from her empire and deserves political asylum. Why does she deserve anything? <laughs> she's she's like mirror universe Hitler. She's a horrible person. We saw her destroy a planet because people who disagree with her were on it. Yeah, this show has a fairly short memory. <laughs> like, also, correct me if I'm wrong, but like, can you only claim asylum for yourself? I don't really know how it works. I mean... It seems like they're willing to keep her around and they see her as having potential value. But it's really fun because they're, they're so Starfleety and she is so haughty and, and imperial around them. You know, she like walks yeah. around the room like she owns the place. And it's a really cool performance uh, on Michelle Yeoh's part. Like the, the, way, like the way she feels totally different and totally regal. In, the, in, in front of these people that it's meaningless to. I know that she is dead, and I am not. Her imprisonment does not diminish her, her danger in any way. She yeah. is like a coiled snake. We have engaged the Klingons. Klingons? 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 What the hell is going on in this shit? I have no idea. What is this? There's a really fun... Uh, pivot in terms of tone after this scene, right? You get the confidence of an Emperor Georgiou, and then you cut immediately to Ash Tyler uh, kind of skulking his way through a corridor when he runs into Stamets. Like, if we're talking about differences in confidence, I don't think Ash Tyler could be any lower. And Stamets really uh, rightfully and yet professionally lays into him. Like, he doesn't raise his voice to ash he doesn't try to punch him in the face it's a very brief interaction it's yeah. i mean it's almost surprisingly brief given how much time we've spent on it but i think that i think stamets really intrinsically understands what happened and yeah while he's not forgiving it he's also like a kind of character that doesn't see the the point in in like drawing anything out i also wondered if you plugged yourself into the size of the universe and understood the scale of it in the way that Stamets does. Is your grief over the love for one person diminished? Like in such a way that like you feel it and you're able to express it. Right. And the way that Stamets does it is like you killed someone I loved who was very special to me. But if, if your world grows as big as it is for him, I wonder what that does to your relative ability to process the grief over someone. Right. It it seems to me like it can't help but diminish that in an interesting way. Stamets and Burnham have the most to resent in Ash Tyler and yeah. they you know, I I don't think Stamets wanted to talk to Ash Tyler either. It's just that they yeah. run into each other. Like you you kind of see it in his body language, the like oh crap, now I have to talk to this guy. Did you ever <laughs> avoid a bully in junior high? I did. 
And I, I got to tell you, like, I would have been far more careful if I were Ash Tyler about the place where I might have run into this guy. Like, there is no way I would allow meeting Stamets in the hallway to happen if I were Ash Tyler. Yeah. Ash Tyler's next scene is going to the mess hall, and uh, it's a really surprising and beautiful moment of humanity where he sits down by himself and Tilly like sees him and just like quickly gets up and goes over to him. And he's like, no, like you don't have to, you don't have to like try and be friendly to me. I'm fine. And, and she says, how could that possibly be true? Yeah. This was a really beautiful scene, Ben. Like, I don't know how you could love Tilly any more than right now. She's just the greatest. It made me think a lot about, how this series is so different from other Star Trek series and how it depicts the other, whether Mm -hmm. or not you're the other alien or you're the other personality or you're the other, or whether you're like the person who's taken an action that, that other people find uh, terrible, you know, like I think for as long as we've been watching Star Trek, Starfleet is an organization that, carries itself as the best of what humanity offers. Yeah. And there's so many people in this show that aren't the best. There are almost more non-best people on this show than <laughs> than like best and brightest <laughs> Federation people. And Well, we don't really know that many of the bridge crew. Maybe they're like totally yeah. the best, but we just don't know it. I thought a lot about TNG and how the, the others as depicted on that show were sort of made fun of. And yeah. the show doesn't make fun of Tilly in the way that, you know, ditzy Sonia Gomez was made fun of, or Barkley, or Nog, right. or Loxana. Or Data, even. like Yeah, like anyone who doesn't fit the mold of that smart, serious, uh, socially aware, cocksure main character. Yeah. Like, and that's something that I've come around to by watching Discovery is like TNG made fun of those characters and they made fun of you if you were like them and Discovery doesn't. Discovery embraces you if you're different and Tilly is the example of the person who does and I think yeah. that's really beautiful. I do too. I, uh, Michael Burnham is different from everybody and yeah. I keep coming back to just how amazing the performance is. Like how how many like different versions of Michael Burnham uh, we have seen, you know, like the I am living on Vulcan and acting hella Vulcan all the time, <laughs> yeah. Michael Burnham, to like to like total meltdown mode, Michael Burnham, to putting her life back together, Michael Burnham, and like how how big the subtle changes are. They're small in the in the performance, but what they mean is really big, and uh, it's it's amazing. Like she's. Like the one person that that has the biggest problem with with Michael Burnham is Saru, and the show sets up Saru as being kind of an asshole for having that problem, you know. Right. I mean, he but he's also set up as the most infirm in mentality and physicality. Yeah, and and like yet he's really come into his own. Like, I felt like the show felt really Star Trekky the second he started being captain. Yeah. Like, it started feeling like, oh, man, like, this is like a a Star Trek ship in a way that we recognize in a way that it wasn't under Lorca. Like, it felt weird under Lorca. Right. And that was just a tone thing. 
an a subtle tone thing, but they really did something cool with that. Yeah, tone is the hardest part of any show to dial in, and this show naturally found its level uh, in yeah. the contrast between those two characters as Captain. You're right. Well, speaking of Saru, they head to Starbase One, and they're just about to drop out of warp when Saru dumps them out and uh, shows them ganglia. The image resolves on the screen, and it's uh, it's Starbase One with a cloud of wreckage around it and, like, the burning body of a starship floating nearby, and uh, and it's been tagged up. This has turned into a bad neighborhood. This neighborhood's really gone, gone, gone south. Admiral Bob, like, is so far from the cocksure admiral that boarded the ship in the beginning of the episode... Yeah. She actually kind of goes catatonic here at what she's seeing because she's seeing, you know, unlike the depictions of loss that were shown in the McLaughlin group earlier where it's just four-digit thousands of dead per skirmish, like 80,000 yeah. people died when this when Starbase 1 was destroyed and three more ships and a and bunch of the Starfleet executive it. branch too. And yeah. yeah, like that this was totally a surprise is something that just totally stuns her. And yeah. Saru actually orders the ship away because Admiral Bob is so frozen by this moment, which I thought was a great command decision by Saru at this point. He's yeah, he's able to step in and make a decision to save the ship. I wish they had said what Starbase One was in orbit of because they said it's a hundred AU's from Earth, which means it's really quite like it's it's a hundred times as far from Earth as Earth is from the Sun. But it's in orbit of a planet that has clouds, so it's like it's within right. our solar system. Like, what is that? Europa or something? It's weird. I don't know. I, don't know. I wish they had said. You know, like it. Uh, I feel like it wouldn't have been that hard to say. <laughs> On TNG, they would have uh, gone around the horn like Sector Zero Zero One, and then cut <laughs> to another character. You mean Starbase One? Cut to another character. You mean Earth? <laughs> <laughs> but it's not Earth. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it couldn't be, or if it is, they got their uh, they got their math wrong. Yeah, the significance of it is in the loss of life. At this point, it is not necessarily uh, geographical. The safety of Starbase One doesn't exist anymore, and Admiral Bob marches down to the brig and confronts Laurel, and kind of fills Laurel in on what has happened in a way that Laurel hasn't hasn't heard about before. But it's like she's really taking apart the Takuvma ideology in in doing this. She's like, yeah, like Takuvma didn't know what the fuck he was talking about when he said that Starfleet wanted to assimilate the Klingons. Like, we don't. We're not interested in it. Like, the main the main rule that we all follow is not getting up in, each, in other cultures' businesses unless they want. But this war is not the united Klingon empire that you were fighting for. And all it is is Klingons killing humans and civilians and stuff for for points. And it's destroying my civilization, and it's the opposite of what Takuvma put into the world. I think there's three or four scenes of, of monologuing in this episode, and, and they're all really strong. But this one might be one of my favorites because Admiral Bob really lays out in practical terms what she's going for here. Like... She just drops the rank. The uh, the wall to the brig might as well not even be up. She's like, 
negotiate with me? What does your side even want? Like, are there terms to this war? If so, what are they? And Laurel, in a hyper-efficient manner, basically says the war serves itself. Like, once you've started this thing with us, it does not end. And that is a terrifying thought. They're going to either finish you off or you're going to finish them off. There's no, like, middle thing. This isn't like any other war they've ever fought. And I think Bob is... Bob may be willing to surrender some stuff in order to make it end. I don't think she sees an outcome to the war in which the Federation survives. It's the Borg's problem, right? Yeah. Like, yeah. The, the Federation wants to, like, they want to do diplomacy. They want to reach an understanding. And they're facing an enemy that has zero interest in that and is operating on a totally different rule book. Yeah. Random thought about this scene, Ben, is I really like seeing Admiral Bob with the unzipped uniform top, a mm-hmm. lot like the uh, original series era film look. I like that that's still a thing. Yeah. Uh, another random thought, in the uh, prison garb that they've given her, Laurel looks like a real marshmallow head because <laughs> she's got so much loaf up top and yeah. like a pretty slight frame underneath. <laughs> yeah. Party on the top. No business anywhere else. It's just all party. (laughs) Head to the penthouse for the party. (laughs) Feels like this episode is a lot of people seeing other people and having Mm -hmm. conversations with them. You know? Yeah. That's not a complaint, though. No. The next one is Michael Burnham and Emperor Giorgio talking about, like, what is it going to take to beat these Klingons? And Giorgio has a theory of fighting the Klingons. The Klingons are like cancer cells, constantly dividing. To root them out, you must destroy the tumor at its source. Giorgio puts this idea into Burnham's head and she takes it to Bob and it's pretty soon like what they are doing, which is we are going to go take the fight to the Klingons. We're going to do a coordinated assault on Kronos that... Uh, which is like not something that the rest of the Starfleet brass is up for. Like the, the argument is that like, Oh, we need to go back and defend earth. And Admiral Bob is like, Hey, listen, our tactics have shown a solid nine months of absolute failure. So why don't we start thinking a little outside the box or rather a little inside the Kronos? This is uh, this is another moment that feels a lot like best of both worlds too, in that mm-hmm. you know if if what you've tried before has failed, you must try a thing you'd never think of doing before, and this this is an idea that the Federation hasn't considered because they haven't been to Kronos in a hundred years and they have no idea where the furniture is situated on that planet. Right. It's got an atmosphere that you can't see through. It's got defenses that they don't know about. It's super far away. It seems like a suicide mission in a lot of ways. Yeah, so the idea is they're going to get some more spores and jump Discovery to the interior of Kronos and then use like a like a drone to map the the orbital defenses and all the like military targets and then take them out from there. And uh we kind of split into two plot lines at this point. The one plot line is Stamets and Tilly, etc. like mounting a a terraform a planet very quickly with spore fungus so that we can get a whole bunch of spores because we're out 
uh, on the one hand, and like the machinations of Giorgio on the other hand. She's like, hey, listen, like I've given you like a like a strategic leg up here, but it's not going to be enough, and I can I can actually guarantee success if you if you work with me on this. She's talking to Sarek, and he's willing to trust her in a surprising way. And I guess it might be because of the mind meld. Like, I guess he maybe knows, like, because he mind melded with Saru, like, what this Giorgio's capabilities are. If your survival depended on trusting her, wouldn't you have to meld her, too? Yeah, or, like, wouldn't you just meld her to get what you needed strategically and tactically out of her and then do it yourself? To me, Emperor Giorgio already stated her goal. She wants to get back to the Mirror Universe, and everything that follows this moment seems to me as she's Lorca-ing. She's going to try to get back, and if it means being the captain of the Discovery, just like Lorca was, like, this this feels like that kind of plan to her. (laughs) Like, give her her the chair, but... uh like put a uh, a piece of lucite over the little computer on the on the handlebar of the chair so that she doesn't mess up a jump the existential question that this moment raises and and the episode raises is what are you willing to do to ensure your survival there are a bunch of times when people talk about using mirror universe methods in the prime universe and there's a bunch of argument about like that's not us we don't do that shit but yeah. when when the survival of your species is at stake, you have to be willing to do awful shit, right? This is Star Trek hashing out a thing that they've hashed out a million times. Like, there's best of both worlds in this. There's that, I can't remember what it's called. There's that TNG episode where they, they're, like, down on some planet and the doctor gets abducted in a terrorist attack. Yeah, yeah. Um, this is a, like, utopian socialist society that is interacting with other societies that are unpersuaded by their values and willing to do horrible things to them and like trying to wrap their minds around how you how you project yourself into a galaxy that doesn't necessarily agree with everything you're doing even though you like are really convicted in the things you're doing being the right thing what what Michael Burnham has a conversation with Sarek and he's like, Hey, I got to go. Like there's some, you know, this plan is, is off to a great start, but there's some stuff I got to go look into. Uh, Hey, by the way, just before I go W slash R slash T Ash Tyler, like you shouldn't feel bad for having loved him. And, uh, you know, love thine enemy is a pretty good, a cool and groovy way to live. So, peace out. James Frain, in in playing Sarek here, does some really subtle stuff. When he turns away from Michael Burnham here, there's like, there's a stilt in his turn. I don't know if you've got this scene queued up, but when he turns away to go to the transporter room, there's his full turn back around when he expresses his feelings about about loving the enemy but before he does that there's a little there's a little stutter in him you can see how torn he is about leaving her in in a really subtle way in a way that i don't know that you direct i think that's just coming from him and i think it's just a really amazing 
acting job by James Frain here. Yeah, he's really terrific. Um, I think that the performances on this show have been fairly universally great. Yeah. He says something about how, like, she, she's, like, embarrassed to have, have let emotions get the better of her. And he says, you're human, as is your mother. And I wondered if you thought he was talking about Giorgio or about uh, his wife. I thought at the time he was talking about his wife. And I think it serves to underscore why he is such a different Vulcan, because he loves humans. He loves his wife as he loves Michael Burnham. Yeah. He understands how difficult it is to love someone who is different from yourself in the way that Michael Burnham is now confronting in her own life. Yeah. And I think that like this conversation really hits her with a double whammy of like, A, this kind of felt like I was saying goodbye to Sarek forever. And B, he's really like bringing into relief the pain that I feel over Ash Tyler. And, uh, and I think she kind of tries to run from it. Like she's, she's going down to engineering to talk to, to Tilly about, you know, how, you know, the spore planting project is coming. And then she, she kind of breaks and says like, Hey man, like I just talked to my dad and he left and I am feeling shitty. And, uh, Tilly is like, is, is there for her emotionally, but it's also like, Hey, you need to also go talk to your boyfriend because, uh, you have been avoiding him and that is not cool. I really like that this scene exists because it's another great Tilly moment, but it also means that Michael Burnham is getting it from all sides about her need to confront Ash about what happened. It's not just her father figure that does it. It's her best friend on the ship too. Like there's really, there's really no quarter for her anymore where she's not getting this kind of advice. So, so she has to do it. Yeah. And she finds Tyler having a Star Trek approved window bum out. He's in like this room full of like, scuba tanks for some reason well here's the headcanon i had ben this this to me seemed like the set where you get dressed to go out of the airlock and and do and do spacewalks oh you think he was gonna go do he was gonna space himself that's what i thought we've seen so many people die in unexposed space on this show i thought maybe he the implication was that he was considering killing himself wow yeah, this is an intense scene. Like, she comes in, and he takes a step toward her, and she steps back. Yeah. And uh, they have a tough conversation here. He's saying, like, you, you know, like, he has no illusion that she's going to just accept him back, you know, unconditionally or whatever. It's not going to be the way it was with Tilly. You know, like, like Michael Burnham and Stamets have have hurt from the things that Voke in Ash did. And this scene is about Michael Burnham confessing to him that she is not stronger than that hurt. Like she's, she cannot, she cannot look at him without thinking about the pain of it. I really like how this scene was written too. There's some efficiency in her dialogue when she states, You said that if it got to be too much, that if you couldn't handle it, you would come to me. And it did. And you did. Well, it's like, to whatever extent Ash Tyler is culpable, 
for what happened. It is in that he didn't get help and right. he didn't trust he didn't trust his loved ones enough to help him when he needed it. And that's another major theme of the show is that, you know, these characters share as a way to get over things or feel things or 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 celebrate things. Ash is fucking ridiculous in this scene, though, as far as the case that he's trying to make. Like, he's terribly hurt, and that's understandable, but he's not feeling a great amount of empathy for Michael Burnham's position because he actually, like, he's like, you just want to leave because things got complicated. It That is <laughs> such... That is selling it so short. Yeah. And, and, and to actually need Michael Burnham to illustrate that it's not just complicated, you tried to kill me, and here's exactly how that felt when you did, was, was tough. Like, I think Ash needs to know himself a little better in this moment, too. Yeah. This ain't high school Ash Tyler. Right. Um, the way the scene ends is really interesting, because she's like, hey, I, you know, like, I've been... I've been going through the process of putting myself back together after losing it all as well. And it's a solitary and painful process. And the kind of unsaid thing that is very evident in that is like, I am not going to be here to help you. And you kind of see it on his face. Like the the question of like, why can't we help each other with it? You know, like why can't we put things back together together? Like, you totally understand where she's coming from. Like, I, like how do you ever trust a guy again after he's very intentionally tried to kill you and, like, you saw it in in his face? Like, the... Well, Ben, I would point to hundreds of years of domestic abuse as examples of why people stay in relationships that are abusive, you know? And also why people leave them. Right. Yeah. Um, and the the freight of that is, like, totally in this scene. It's very... Uh, I mean, I, I kind of think it like explains why he kind of goes into a few irrational places with yeah. arguing for her to stay. That kind of felt realistic to that. There's a beautiful part in in the case that Ash is making here, in that he he says non specifically that love was the reason that the program didn't activate in his brain all the way. Like his love for her was the reason that he's not a fully realized. Klingon sleeper agent that's in a cell or dead at the moment and I like the idea of that yeah I wanted to talk about light in this scene yeah uh, because it is by far the most brightly lit we have seen either of these characters but it kind of it kind of flips a couple of times like when she comes in he's backlit and very dark and he like approaches her and they like kind of switch around like they change they change trade spaces and then he is mm-hmm. super brightly lit when they when they have that like un unfiltered sunlight on them they they look very naked and exposed and and it's uh very evocative of what their characters are going through at the time and then like when the shadows fall on them it's it always coincides with when they are closing themselves off to each other right that intentionality is is demonstrated throughout the episode. I think another example of of that is that scene with uh, with Tilly and Michael Burnham in engineering. That's all handheld. Yeah, like the stress that Michael's going through. Like handheld is a technique that that shows people under stress. 
And that mm-hmm. entire scene is really moving around hard in a way that helps underscore that. In the same way that in this scene, there's sort of a pastel cast from the planet below. The scene that happens below this scene is is when the disco dumps their their agribusiness all over the Veda moon and starts growing spores there. And I think, you know, the life below the ship during this conversation gives everything this interesting lighting. And it's a great contrast to the death of a relationship that's happening in that room. Like, I think Michael even says so, like we're, we're watching something beautiful happen and, and something is dying inside both of us at this moment. Yeah. She walks out and says to Ash Tyler that this is not easy for her. It's, it's very heartfelt, you know, like breaking up with somebody because you need to and not because you don't love them, but because it's not the right thing for you right now is a hard thing to do. And it takes a lot of inner strength to do it. And like she knows that she's hurting him in this moment, but she's also like doing an act of self-preservation. Yeah, I agree. And then there's no, there's no equivocation here either. It feels like it feels like the decision has been made, and she turns and walks away. She is not leaving the door open. Yeah, yeah. In that the door literally closes behind her. <laughs> uh, so Admiral Bob walks out onto the bridge and. Uh, she makes a little speech to the whole ship that uh, rewrites history a lot. Uh, yeah. There, there are about ten dozen hallway extras, you and myself not included, who uh, look up at the speakers and uh, find out that Captain Philippa Georgia was not in fact killed, but was was rescued from Klingons and was brought aboard with Admiral Bob's retinue, and now she is going to take command of the Starship Discovery to go bring the fight to the Klingons. Ben, do you think the bridge crew has any doubt about her identity, being that they've all seen Emperor Georgiou in the Mirror Universe? They don't take this story at face, do they? No, they definitely don't. But I think that like the implication is that if you work on the lower decks... You're not aware of this situation. So, like, if you're there in the room hearing this, you're like, okay, this is the story and we're sticking to it. And if you're not in the room, you're going like, holy shit, there's been a lot going on up there. (laughs) I thought that it would have been interesting to have the McLaughlin group where Admiral Bob lays out this idea to everybody. Yeah, and they do that and then they cross cut to Giorgio in her quarters putting on the disco uniform and like tying her hair into the efficient ponytail and like unscowling herself. I would have liked that scene. Yeah. But uh, yeah, Saru and, and, uh, and Burnham take their seats and, uh, and get ready to go fight. And that's the end of the episode. And Giorgio kind of big dogs Burnham like right away. Like you think we were going to get along person (laughs) who thought she killed me before. Hello, uh, allow me to reintroduce myself. My name is Captain Philippa Hitler Giorgio. <laughs> Do you think installing her as the captain is being done not just because of her knowledge of, of Kronos, but like, does it absolve Starfleet from what they know is going to be done? Like, she is going to go Hitler on Kronos. They know how savage she is. Like, 
she's going to Vulcan goodbye them. Setting aside the idea, the question of how can they possibly trust this person to lead them? Like, I, I sort of feel like she provides effective cover for, for an atrocity to come. Yeah, effective cover and also like the willingness to do it that none of them have. Yeah. We're not atrocity people here in, in Prime Universe. It's fucking weird for an admiral to give the ship to someone else, especially for it to be given to Giorgio here. That that fell off to me, but but we'll see why in the next episode. Yeah. Did you like this episode, Adam? I really like the episode, Ben. Um, it was... Uh, I, I made a comment earlier that sounded disparaging and that it was a lot of people going to meet other people to talk about what had happened and what was going to happen. But this episode is so much more than that description because all of those conversations are, are, are super weighty and the stakes are so high. Um, I really, I really liked, uh, I like that moment with Ash and Stamets in the hallway. I really liked everything that Tilly did this episode. Tilly was given basically two scenes, and she hit dingers on both of them. Yeah. For all the reasons that we discussed, I think this is one of the strongest episodes of the season. What about you? Yeah, I like that too. I mean, it's a weird episode in that like, not a ton happens externally. It's mostly just about kind of like people sorting out their feelings about what have has transpired so far. Like it is almost shocking to think that we only have 45 minutes of show left. And I'm, I'm almost expecting the next episode to be extra long. I mean, this one was a little longer than normal at 49 minutes. So, right. Um, maybe, maybe we will get a, a double or something like that, but, uh, it seems like all of the stuff between, Michael Burnham and Tyler is almost the denouement that uh, that you would expect in a final episode of an arc like this. So uh, it is it's pretty interesting that it's happening where it's happening in in the run. I will say I think your enjoyment of the episode is predicated on on accepting the reasoning for Admiral Bob installing Giorgio as captain. If you can't. If you can't accept that idea, and I understand how difficult it is <laughs> to accept it, then I think the whole episode falls apart and doesn't make sense, and it makes it easily hateable. Yeah. I am just, I'm betting on the idea that that some sense is made of that, that is revealed in the in the season finale. Yeah, when you, when you write a, a series like this, they talk about breaking the story, like the, like, figuring out how all the beats are going to go and mm-hmm. and like what what the meaning is behind the story and stuff um in the rage room and i think that there have been several times where it has seemed like the story was not that well thought out but then explained itself later in a way that was like surprising and satisfying so it would be uh <laughs> pretty disappointing if they if they didn't figure out a way for this to really be meaningful and good right at the finish line. Right. But, uh, you know, remains to be seen. Uh, yeah, I like the episode too. Um, I agree with, uh, well, with what you're saying. And, um, it seems like, it feels like a really big episode for Burnham and, um, and it really like, you know, and, and, and Ash Tyler as well. Like I really, uh, 
I wonder what the future of that character is because I mean they they both sort of have the same the same fate, right? Like once once this adventure is over, they're both sort of scheduled for uh either prison or uh or maybe even a science lab in Ash right. Tyler's case. And that uh that feels like a a thing that can be overcome in story, but they haven't overcome it yet, you know? Yeah, I agree. I'm really pumped for the finale. I mean, there were so many doubts about this show a year ago and before the premiere that, you know, initially I just felt relief that we were getting good Trek. And now I think relief has given way to to great optimism about what's to come. And I really hope that I'm not eating those words after the season <laughs> finale because so often... You know, a finale is is what either pays off the season before it or totally wrecks it. Right. And I think this is something that you see, you've seen in television the last 10 years, especially. So hopefully this show is able to realize all of its its significant investment up until now. Well, Adam, do you want to check our priority one inbox? Yeah, there are some some viewers who have invested in us through the use of a (laughs) priority one message. Priority one message from Starfleet coming in on secured channel. Adam, we have a P1 from the warm honeyed bosom. And it's for us. It's for Ben and Adam. Uh, It goes like this. P5, Janet Jackson killed the groundhog. Wharton Willie ruining Cardassian rodentide. Let's see the Ocean's Eleven remake. Eleven Cheetles starring ten Don Cheetles and Don in a Binturong suit. <laughs> I'd watch a I'd watch a film with ten Don Cheetles. Love that guy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, do you know how to work tenor gif magic? Your pumpkin technique leads to breakage. Try grapefruit instead. May your gait be stable and all your bones be covered. Uh, I feel like there's some kind of Binturong continuity that we're not aware of. Right. Yeah, I agree. A lot of these priority one messages on this show, and I feel like also on The Greatest Generation, contain Binturong gags. You don't often want to change from cantaloupe to grapefruit, regardless of the context. Yeah. No no matter how many Don Cheadles we're talking about. (laughs) Yeah, those grapefruits sting. Well, uh... (laughs) If you would like to leave a priority one message, uh, you can do that by going to maximumfund.org slash jumbotron at uh, 100 bucks for a personal message and 200 for a commercial message. And uh, they help us uh, fund the production of this program. I spent a lot of last week sick in bed. And one thing I was so happy I had when I needed something to eat but didn't really have the energy to cook myself something was Factor Meals. Got a couple of these in the fridge at all times, and they are delicious, fresh, never frozen, chef-crafted meals, and they're ready to go in just about two minutes. And this is convenience food that is actually tasty and full of real ingredients and not hyper-processed crap. And they got you covered all throughout the day. They got pancakes, smoothies, grab-and-go bites, and uh, you can get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause and reschedule deliveries at any time. 
So head to factormeals.com slash trek50 and use code trek50 to get 50% off. That's code trek50 at factormeals.com slash trek50 to get 50% off. Top of the morning to ya. This episode is brought to you by the St. Patrick's Day Shamrock Shavers Manscaped. This year, don't just chase rainbows. Make your own pot of gold and groom your little leprechaun with the leaders in Below the Kilt Care. I didn't make that up. That's actual copy sent to us by the great folks over at Manscaped who make the shaver that I use downstairs on my little leprechaun. And uh, I recommend it. Uh, it works great. Uh, trimming the hedges in your Irish garden isn't just for below the belt. You can complete your look with their new signature Beard Hedger Pro Kit plus Handyman Electric Face Shaver. Everything they make is really good and high quality. And this new trimmer that they have comes with two interchangeable next-gen skin-safe blades. They've got one for a classic trim and a new foil blade to go smooth wherever your heart desires. So get 20% off plus free shipping with code TREK at manscaped.com. That's 20% off and get free shipping with code TREK at manscaped.com. This St. Patrick's Day, make sure your little hairy leprechaun is luckier than ever with Manscaped. Back for another game. You know it. What's going on? Just one more week till Max Fun Drive. <laughs> Hard to believe. It's been a heck of a year since the last one. We're now a worker-owned co-op. We raised $50,000 for charity last year. And we've added a bunch of awesome new shows. But do you think we're ready to do it again? Absolutely. Lovely new gifts are lined up. The episodes will be amazing. And wait till everyone hears the bonus content. Yeah, plus they know to go to MaximumFun.org newsletter, so they're getting all the news. Oh, like that meetup day is on Thursday, March 21st. Then what's bothering you? Me? Oh, nothing. We're all set for Max Fun Drive to start on Monday, March 18th. I just didn't want you to see this coming. Check. What? Hang on! Most of the plants humans eat are technically grass. Most of the asphalt we drive on is almost a liquid. The formula of WD-40 is San Diego's greatest secret. Zippers were invented by a Swedish immigrant love story. On the podcast Secretly Incredibly Fascinating, we explore this type of amazing stuff. Stuff about ordinary topics like cabbage and batteries and socks. Topics you'd never expect to be the title of the podcast. Secretly Incredibly Fascinating. Find us by searching for the word secretly in your podcast app. And at MaximumFun.org. Hey, Ben. What's that, Adam? Did you find yourself a drunk Shimoda? Incredible drunk Shimoda. Oh, I did, Adam. Uh, gotta give it to Admiral Bob for uh, phasering Lorca's cookies. Uh, that was uh, that was uh, it. Just it was a laugh out loud moment for me. And uh, I love and, that your phaser was set to campfire too. On yeah, that. talk about the the like totemic uh, symbol of Lorca and uh, and taking out all of your frustration on it. Um, a lot of fun and uh, very Shimoda-like, in my opinion. How about yourself? Yeah, I, I've got to give it to Bob, too. She phasers the fortune cookies. She panics at Starbase One. And then she installs Giorgio as captain. I think all three of those uh, those incidents really add up to sort of an unhinged 
Bob at this point. Well, it seems like it was Sarek that that brought the idea of giving Giorgio a command uh, to the to the brass, but it is Admiral Bob that is uh, implementing it in that scene. So it's like, yeah. shouldn't shouldn't you uh, raise some concerns about this course of action? Seems like Giorgio would make a better special advisor to the captain than captain herself. Yeah, but- give her one of the one of the anklets that uh, that Ash Tyler is wearing and uh, confine her movements around the ship. She is dangerous AF. You know what's weird about this episode is we don't go into the ready room on the disco at all. I wonder if they're yeah. going to use it anymore. Like that that is such an emblematic. Like that was Lorca's throne. Well, they the, shoot the, the standing the cookies, isn't that in the? That was in the McLaughlin group. They were yeah. in the uh, they were in the round in there. Wow, how do phasers work that you can like dial in, just vaporize the bowl of cookies, but nothing around the bowl of cookies? It's the uh, it's the you can phaser the pot that the mashed potatoes are in, but not the potatoes themselves. Yeah, it's the same canonical setting. phaser. Yeah, <laughs> nicely done. We'll call back those potatoes anytime we can. <laughs> well, what um, do we have coming up on the next episode, Ben? Well, we saw some uh, some some action. We saw a lot of Klingon ships. We saw uh, what looked to be the surface of Kronos. We saw maybe like a strip club environment. Yeah, that looked like it had human strippers in it. We see Giorgio punching Lorel in the face and doing some Star Trek fighting. Yeah, and um, and like an argument between Michael Burnham and Admiral Bob about how we don't have the luxury of principle and Michael Burnham writing for principle is all we have. Oh man, I'm pumped. I'm pumped too. Uh, should we talk a little bit about the future of the greatest discovery while we're, while we're here? Sure. Why not? I think, I think we've decided off mic to continue the show uh, yeah. into a second season. First of all, I think that's it- big news. Yeah, so The Greatest Discovery is uh, going to continue, and we will have a, we will do a full season about season two of Star Trek Discovery. Uh, I think in the off-season, we're going to go to a more relaxed show release pace of, like, once a month, and we'll try and follow, like, news and updates, but uh, I don't know, like, I... I hope we can get some interviews with folks that worked on the show. Um, maybe, maybe talk to some other people that have been observers of the show and get their take. So, um, talk to extras casting specifically. Yeah. We will continue the the campaign to get ourselves cast as hallway extras. We got to um, get a headshot, Ben. Do you have a headshot? I feel like we need those first and foremost. Yeah. Should I have Loaf in the headshot or do I leave that to them? <laughs> you know what we should do is like we should make our own Loaf for the headshots. I do have this crazy mustache right now and I feel like I've never seen a a crew member of a Star Trek ship with a with a mustache. Maybe I can blaze that trail. Yeah, it feels like uh, Starfleet is a real marred shot led environment like a, <laughs> with a strict no facial hair policy. Yeah. Come on. Let's open it up. <laughs> that would be great yeah i'm excited to do some off-season episodes where we just sort of uh dish on news that we read about the show and maybe talk to some interesting people i think that will more than tide us over for a season two of the disco show so uh stay subscribed and uh let your friends know um 
I think if uh, if you've been following along and know folks that are planning on binging Disco once all the episodes are out, uh, it would be really awesome for us if you recommended our show to them. Uh, because you know we need we need all the listeners we can get to support this damn thing. It's the truth. Well, Adam, I think we can leave it there, uh, and Rob can take it away from here. The greatest discovery is a maximumfun.org podcast, hosted by Adam Pranica and Benjamin R. Harrison, and produced and edited by Rob Schulte. Music by Adam Ragusia. Head to MaximumFun.org to support the ongoing production of this show. Please use the hashtag GreatestGen when discussing the show on Twitter. You can find Ben on Twitter at BenjaminAHR, and Adam is at CutForTime. And make sure to check out the Greatest Gen Reddit and Facebook groups if you're looking to continue the conversation even further. MaximumFun.org Comedy and culture. Artist owned. Listener supported.